Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. This is a classic episode. We hope it finds you uh, enjoying the holidays, however you choose to celebrate them. Uh, This one, I really like this one, Noel. Yeah, if a good friend of mine uh, from elementary school, Demetrius Wren, who's a very talented filmmaker, once wrote to me, I uh, hadn't heard from him in years, and he had found the show organically and tuned into this episode, and he gave us some very kind words on this episode. Because, I mean, I think it is uh, a very interesting cultural study, the idea of Chinese food and how the history of Chinese food is also kind of the history of uh, Chinese immigration in the United mm-hmm. States and some very poor treatment to uh, Chinese immigrants immigrants and also some kind of demonization of Chinese food. I didn't realize the whole story behind MSG, how there was this kind of war on MSG that was really just a war on um, Chinese immigrants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's funny also, I don't remember if I mentioned this in, oh, I'm Ben, by the way. I don't remember if I mentioned this in, in our original recording, but I have a lot of Chinese friends and the folks who are Chinese nationals, get this, love Chinese American food. Because it's so very different from Chinese food in China. And it's also a big tradition here in the U.S. for any of our non-U.S. listeners. It's a big tradition for people who don't celebrate Christmas to actually go to a local Chinese restaurant. And this has almost become a stereotype in some cases. But it it's based in truth, largely because in many parts of the U.S., on Christmas, the only restaurants open were the Chinese restaurants, which is great. The food is banging. Oh, it absolutely is. But it's also, as we know, not the same as food that you would get in China. Uh, It's Americanized. It was made to kind of suit American palates in certain dishes like General Tso's chicken. And I think even sesame chicken and some of the most popular ones at Americanized kind of Chinese restaurants were created in the United States. Um, So it's a very interesting cultural fusion story, uh, a very interesting story of our problematic history with um, people from other countries. Mm -hmm. And it ultimately... Kind of has a happy ending. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Are you kidding? There are more than 41,000 Chinese restaurants around the U.S. alone. I think you could say they won the argument ultimately. Okay. You're absolutely right. No more spoilers. Let's get right into the episode. Happy Thanksgiving, folks. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. A 
Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Ben. I'm Noel. And we are, as always, joined with our super producer, Alex Williams. Have we introduced Alex to the Ridiculous History crowd yet? Ah, yes. Everyone, Alex. Alex, everyone. He doesn't really talk. He only talks in our ears and yeah. our head. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we get him to turn up the hi-hats. Mm-hmm. And we assure you he's very much real. He's very much super. No, he's there. We're looking at him. Mm-hmm. He is a handsome, toothsome young man. Um, have you seen the new Blade Runner movie yet, Ben? I have not seen the new Blade Runner yet, no. I saw it last night mm-hmm. uh, at like 10 o'clock. And I do really badly with uh, falling asleep at late movies. And it's quite long. But mm-hmm. I will tell you that it moved along at such a – it's a very languid movie. Uh, but it actually has a pretty incredible clip of action and activity that kind of kept me uh, awake and alert, and I enjoyed every second of it. And it's a, it's somewhat of a slow burn, right, if I understand it, well, that's that? What's, that's the, yeah. I'm, I'm having a hard time expressing because it, it is a slow burn, and it's a very languid kind of drony movie. It's got this amazing uh, score that very much matches what um, Vangelis did on the original one, but this mm-hmm. time they've got Hans Zimmer doing it, and he's doing his very best Vangelis impersonation. Oh, that's cool. And it's great, but it's like, you know, it's the kind of movie that uh, used to maybe would have put me to sleep watching it at 10 o'clock, and it is three hours long. But I'm just, I think that's says a lot. I don't want to give anything away. Everyone uh-huh. should see it. It's really cool. Uh, this has like literally nothing to do with what we're talking about today. It kind of does. Does it? Yes. Because, because we are we're currently talking about the 2017, the new Blade Runner film. Right. Uh, in the previous Blade Runner film, one of my favorite things about it watching watching it as a wee tyke was uh Deckard, right? The mm-hmm. protagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh he is it it seems like there are scenes where he is walking by restaurants and stuff ben i totally just pulled this out of nowhere but it absolutely does connect because it was the the future de- depicted in the blade runner movies and in this new one too there yep. is a definite chinese influence you see where i'm going i do see where you're going and there are you know restaurants on every corner a lot of the folks that make the manufacture the uh, bootleg um, replicant animals and different mm-hmm. things like that. They're they're from China, and it uh, everyone kind of also speaks Chinese. Uh, yeah, yeah. It seems like it's a second language. It's very yeah, important. There's this implied subtext that whether economically or culturally, the uh, the Chinese culture is making these inroads right mm-hmm. on places where it, it formerly would never have existed. And in the universe of at least the original Blade Runner. This is a given. This is after the fact, after the story begins. This has already happened. And what's strange about it, you know, there is always the argument that science fiction is like prescient, right? Mm -hmm. It's predictive. In this case, what's fascinating is that in the past, we have to wonder what the directors are drawing from because in the real life past, in genuine American history, there was a time where people were very threatened by this notion. Yeah, it's kind of another really awful, embarrassing uh, thing that we as a country did. Mm. Yeah, it's it's pretty awful. Um, this is kind of a bit of a bummer of a topic, but it's really fascinating and for obvious reasons, completely ridiculous. But we're going to be as sensitive as humanly possible about this, but there are some kind of upsetting racial themes that we're going to get into mm-hmm. in talking about America's war on Chinese restaurants in the now, early 1900s. Now, I know, I know, I know how this sounds. We know how this sounds when you're hearing it. A war on what? And of course, it's not as if America is a stranger to waging war on 
various things, various things that aren't nations, right? Mm. Uh, and it's kind of hard to believe today because we know that there are over 41,000 Chinese restaurants in the U.S. This is an institution, you know? We always think of uh, think of about how ubiquitous some fast food places might be, mm-hmm. but Chinese restaurants are taking the cake. I believe there are about three times as many Chinese restaurants as the number of McDonald's. And uh, General Tso's chicken. I've always been concerned about my pronunciation of that. Is it General Tso? Yeah, yeah, like TSO. Are we cool with that? I'm going to go with General Tso. It's um, one of the most ordered dishes uh, online uh, via Grubhub um, in the nation. So it's like one of the most popular takeout foods that we have. Um, So let's just set the scene a little bit, the creepy racist scene, if you will. Uh, In the early to mid-1900s, the um, white establishment, which was made up of like local governments and labor unions, and boy – Boy, were the labor unions a big part of this problem, which we'll get into later. Mm-hmm. Um, among other institutions in the U.S., basically put out and supported these Jim Crow laws and other regulations that were incredibly prohibitive specifically to people of Asian descent. Right. And based on these regulations and the underlying and open, we should say this, very open racist ideology, this establishment waged a campaign trying to drive the Chinese restaurants of the time out of business. And a lot of the stuff that we're, a lot lot of the stuff we're taking as inspiration in this episode comes from a fantastic study written by Gabriel J. Chin and John Ormond called The War Against Chinese Restaurants. Yeah, the paper goes into every possible angle of this, and it's it's more than we could uh, hope to cover in a, in a thirty minute podcast. But um, it's 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 such an interesting microcosm for the history of racism mm-hmm. in America too, because it comes at it from all sides. Basically, you have you know the idea of targeting a specific race with mistreatment and trying to exclude them from earning a living wage and being successful entrepreneurs in this country to, you know, the boycotts and all of the things that go along with that and protests to the whole idea of the um, Chinese man being painted and portrayed as some sort of insidious threat that would potentially woo unsuspecting white women into mm-hmm. their, you know, uh, underground opium lairs and, you know, uh, just just the most awful stereotypical kinds of things you could think of. Uh, this paper really dissects all of that and gets to the heart of what's going on here. Yeah. And the heart of what's going on is unfortunately all too familiar because it obeys some of the same patterns we have seen in history before. And the, the the strangest and craziest thing about it is the the question: Did America wage war on Chinese restaurants? Sounds ridiculous, and the answer is yes, absolutely. And Noel, you mentioned some uh, some of the prongs of their argument here, and there there are two sides, right? There's the economic side, as South Park characters would say, they're taking our gerbs, right? Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, a lot of um, Chinese immigration happened in the early 1800s as a result of uh, their 
willingness to work for less money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we built the Transcontinental Railroad, and that was a huge part of that labor force. And, you know, of course, you you leave your home and you come to the land of opportunity in the hopes of making a better life for yourself. And then, surprise, you're treated like utter garbage and paid nothing and given no protections mm-hmm. because the unions literally would not allow uh, folks of Chinese descent to be a member. Right, exactly. And, you know, labor unions are a complex thing in U.S. history. So we're not denigrating the idea of labor unions overall. This is not capital L, capital U, labor unions, the concept. This is about the provable, indisputable actions of labor unions in this time. Because, you see, they thought that these restaurants, for for people who are able to literally – through backbreaking work, probably no small amount of luck and endless determination, people who started their own restaurants were being targeted because they were seen as competition for American restaurants and that they were taking away jobs, right? Good American jobs, in this case, pretty much white people restaurant jobs. And the idea of this threat was uh, to them, a to these labor unions, It was not so much an act of aggression as it was some sort of act of defense or survivalism. Noel, you've already already mentioned the fear that uh, these these strange men would capture the white women and involve them in slavery essentially for opium. And this also I think shows how – how much of a dearth of education there was regarding the history of the West, China, and opium because we we haven't talked about it on this show. But in the opium wars, one of the main reasons they occurred is because the, the Chinese government said, please stop forcing opium on our people when it was really happening. So it's an interesting and heartbreaking switcheroo. Uh, as, as you said, This immigration had been uh, in play since the 1850s and as as people who came over from China began to prosper and save money, they started opening their own businesses. American dream, right? Textbook American dream. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So to quote from um, an email interview conducted with the author of that paper, uh, Gabriel Jack Chen, um, non-Chinese American cooks and waiters and restaurant owners really wanted the Chinese restaurants gone. But what got the labor movement as a whole interested was restricting immigration in general and keeping Asians out of the workforce entirely. Yeah, absolutely. And this this is a strange case because it begins to enter legislation. This fear-mongering and this prejudice led to Congress passing laws that explicitly stopped, blocked, halted, cut off Chinese immigration, starting with the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And the thing is, when the earliest Chinese restaurants started in the U.S., they were not billing themselves as quote-unquote Chinese restaurants. The restaurateurs were assimilating. They were including American food, you know, like grilled steak, roast chicken, you know, whatever is around too. I mean, we also think about supply chains in that time. Sure. They, they were probably making foods that were easily made from surrounding areas, right, and agricultural resources. But this didn't stop the unions from going after Chinese restaurants, and they used different tactics to do this. In some communities, uh, the white union members would do what is almost a mafioso tactic. They would go into the restaurant and they would say, well, you know, we're going to give you just a warning here. Might be about time to leave town. Mm -hmm. Wednesday's a good trip forever. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in that paper, there's a whole section on some of these uh, attempts to literally run these folks out of town, like on a rail. Yes, and this was not the only arrow in the quiver of these labor unions. They also organized boycotts, and a boycott would be – you've seen these in the modern day. A boycott in this instance would be something like a group of people getting together to maybe protest outside of a restaurant – to pass out handbills talking about this this menace and to exhort friends, neighbors, and loved ones not to go to this restaurant to make it feel that it's somehow a civic responsibility not to support this establishment. And when you bring it back to the labor unions, it becomes basically like a national boycott because they made – a huge deal about not patronizing any businesses that weren't connected to the labor unions, and they would not allow people of Asian descent, um, whether they are, you know, even children of immigrants, Mm. to join the unions. Um, Therefore, they were essentially telling all of their members, 
to have nothing to do with any business that had any connection with you know these these people. Yeah. So let's let's think about this in a human perspective. I love that you point this out. So even if you were born in the U.S., maybe your parents immigrated and you were born in California, that law would still apply to you. It's uh, something more. It's the layer of race instead of just the layer of citizenship. And let's imagine for a second the other side of the argument. Let's say that you are a labor union member and you don't have a problem with these other restaurants. Heck, once a week you go out for family dinner at, at your favorite place and you order chop suey, which is a whole different thing, right? But – because you're in the union, you can – It's you're not only told not to do it, but there will be consequences if you do uh, go to this restaurant. Yeah, and speaking of uh, chop suey, that was actually a kind of an Americanized um, Asian dish that became, you know, a centerpiece for um, these restaurants that were popping up all over the place, especially in California. They were called chop suey houses, and it was a dish that was like a stir-fried mix of meat and vegetables and eggs over noodles. And I was looking it up, and apparently the origin of the the term chop suey comes from uh, the idea of reusing uh, leftovers, so sort of like, you know, whatever you have left in the fridge. So it's not a specific set of ingredients. It's just kind of like whatever's around. Um, but they were really popular and these restaurants were popping up all over the place. And, you know, the they were the target of all kinds of racist animosity mm-hmm. um, wherever they were found, even though they were certainly also pretty popular. Right. People were People were obviously building restaurants to meet demand, right? If people didn't like this food, then these would these restaurants wouldn't exist. That's just how this business would work. When the boycotts didn't work, though, and when the uh, the threats didn't work, both too. Let's remember the people who own the restaurants and the people who already existed in labor unions. There was another step and a very serious step. This is where our story takes an even darker turn. There was a missionary named Elsie Siegel, and she was found murdered in 1909 in a room above a Chinese restaurant in New York City. And this, as Machiavellian, cold, and I would say evil, as it sounds, was the opportunity that these anti-immigration forces had been waiting for. Yeah, this became a really huge story, not just in New York, but all across the country. Um, There's a really great article on the site of the uh, Tenement Museum, and it's got some great clips of the headlines. One of them is, find Miss Siegel dead in trunk. Her body was found in a trunk, um, strangled with a rope around her neck. And she was actually the granddaughter of a very well-known union general from the Civil War. So this was a pretty big deal. Uh, One of the other headlines was, China suspected of slaying white girl is in custody. Yikes. It's like, how much more divisive can you get in a headline? Mm. It's like, well, they were definitely trying to push an agenda here and uh, stir up hysteria and kind of like a panic, you know, to, oh, we've got to do something about this problem, this uh, the, the inherent threat that has now gone beyond, this is me speaking hypothetically mm-hmm. in the voice of these kind of awful people, um, has gone beyond just threatening us monetarily, but there is a legitimate threat to our children Mm -hmm. from this insidious menace. Think of the children. We have a moral imperative. And this 
propagandization, this this smear campaign reached a fever pitch. It became a uh, media trope. See, when when Elsie Siegel's death triggered uh, a new era of this, it came from a pre-existing thing, this white female victimization. In Chin's paper, they cite an 1899 film called King of the Opium Ring. And it features a clown who rescues a young white woman in uh, dire straits on the balcony of a Chinese restaurant. This thing played around the country. People loved it. So it wasn't, you know, tabula rasa. It wasn't a blank slate for the labor unions to exploit this stuff emotionally. And the Siegel murder led to lobbying for laws that completely banned white women, exclusively white women, not just from working at a Chinese restaurant, but from visiting one as a customer. And now we have the benefit of history when we think about the murder. Well, it's crazy, too, because, I mean, the language in this legislation is just absurdly, obviously, it's racist, but it's really sexist. It it, it, it talks about how women are somehow weak-willed and, you know, pliable and easily, you know, led astray and uh, just very condescending stuff. But as it turns out, this case had a pretty interesting uh, conclusion. So it turned out that the apartment uh, where Elsie where Siegel's body was discovered belonged to a man by the name of Leon Ling, whose cousin owned the restaurant um, underneath the apartment. And they found a box with uh, a whole lot of love letters from uh, Miss Siegel to this man, Leon Ling. And apparently some of them sounded very as though she were pleading mm-hmm. with him to not leave her or, you know, to, to stay with her. And it also came out that there was another player in the story. There was a man um, who was seen as being a potential jealous, uh, spurned lover oh. um, of Miss Siegel. And this man's name was Chu Gain. And he admitted to um, also being in a relationship with Elsie. Uh, and that he had received anonymous letters threatening her life. Hmm. And then eventually the police discovered another man by the name of Chu Gain who admitted to have having, having had a relationship with um, Elsie, and he received all these anonymous letters threatening his life and her life if they didn't end the relationship. Um, hmm. Ultimately, the cops arrested three people and um, Ling eventually left the country and was never apprehended. And the murder is apparently an open case, you know, more than 100 years later. But all of this stuff just stirred up these wild rumors that things from like Elsie had killed herself to, you know, the Chinese community had smuggled Ling out of the country. So all of this just served to pour fuel on this, you know, racist fire that was mm-hmm. burning already. And because it was such a sensational story, it kind of spread this, you know, all over the country. And this this went city to city. Now, that's not to say that some conscientious local politicians didn't fight against these bills. Some mayors vetoed them. But there was a change. There, there was this wave of people who were convinced, convinced that the enemy was within and the enemy was making delicious food as a cover for some larger uh, perfidious motive. Opponents Luckily, luckily for me, 
<laughs> the opponents were not successful in ridding cities of Chinese restaurants. And eventually, the good news is that the organized movement against the restaurants started to fade out. One of the reasons that Chin cites that it faded out is pretty ugly, but it makes sense. It's the Immigration Act of 1924, which made things worse in terms of immigration because it took the Chinese Exclusion Act that just banned Chinese laborers and then it expanded it to include any immigrant from the Asian continent, which is insane. These laws, according to Chin, gave the white power structure that Nolan and I mentioned earlier a little bit of, I guess you'd say, reassurance a security blanket where they said, well, we don't have to worry anymore about our jobs and our incomes being taken, quote unquote. And this, in the popular mindset, meant that Asian Americans were not going to be a labor threat, at least not as much as they were seen at the time. Okay, so you, you that, I felt like there was a silver lining coming there, Ben, and I just, I just, uh, I don't, I don't see it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, you're saying like it got better because it got worse. You know, I, uh, I gotta tell you, you know, I think, I think that might be the case. Yeah, and I guess what I'm getting at is it got better in terms of there weren't, there wasn't as much of a problem for the folks that were doing horrible, angry, racist stuff. So therefore, some of the horrible, angry, racist stuff. Stopped, I guess, but... Right. But it didn't... See, that's the thing. It didn't get better for this power structure because it never got worse. You know what I mean? Like, this this threat, this, this perspective of a threat is clearly based on racist ideology. It's not based on... It's, it's not a solid economical argument. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it wasn't until the... Was it the 40s? That you that the U.S. lifted this ban on on Chinese immigration, or no, it wasn't on immigration. It was on uh, Chinese people becoming naturalized U.S. citizens. So as as far uh, as recently as the '40s, this was this was a concern. But you know what's funny? Like what always happens is what really turned the popular mindset, um, you know, in the favor of some of these business owners was, uh, you know, celebrities doing stuff and uh you know we've got like bob hope and and ronald reagan were big fans of a place in san francisco called charlie lowe's forbidden city which is such a cool name for a place um and it was like a nightclub and a restaurant in san francisco's chinatown um yeah it was this guy named larry ching who was considered uh the chinese sinatra and uh, i was reading this article on the san francisco gate there was also like a chinese sophie tucker a chinese Fred Astaire, probably a Chinese Sammy Davis Jr. I don't know mm-hmm. what have you, but um, they, they always had to be couched, you know, as some American, you know, popular the Chinese version of this it, existing to thing. make it work. Yeah, um, places like this because of the appearance of acceptance from influencers like, you know, these movie stars and, and presidents. presidents uh, it's people started to kind of like chill out about it a little bit. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. 
obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit tomboyx.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes. You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So what changed? You know, we have these uh, celebrity endorsements, one of which famously by a man who would later go on to serve as U.S. president. But the wheels of legislation often grind slow. And as we said, it wasn't until 43 that the specific ban on Chinese people naturalizing occurred. But even after that point, immigration laws made it incredibly difficult for people of Chinese origin to immigrate. And this was in this lasted up until, get this, 1968, three years after the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 was enacted into law. So three years after it was supposed to happen, yeah, it happened. It's pretty mind-boggling. In, the, in the 60s. It takes so long to do normal stuff in this country. I don't get it. Um, but, you know, now here we are, as we said at the top of the show— there are just, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of Chinese restaurants. Mm-hmm. It's like a hugely popular family meal night takeaway, you know, thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love it. My kid loves it. It's very delicious, you know, tasty food. And, and a lot of it, like, too, this is, it's such a such an amazing variety of things too, like and like different styles between Sichuan and Cantonese mm-hmm. and all of the spices. And it's just, I mean, I'm I'm a huge Huge fan of Chinese food. Yeah, when we were looking at some of the research here, my my question for some of my friends started becoming, when's the last time you ate Chinese food? Everybody, it seems, had it in like the past month at some point. You know, people are voting with their taste buds. But the, the journey isn't over yet because the authors say that they see clear echoes of the early 20th century Today, we've got a great quote from Chin who says, there's a long tradition in the United States of good things being reserved for white folks and misguided economic race-tinged xenophobia. The waves of discrimination have always proved to be unnecessary and counterproductive. And honestly, I agree. 
because when we see these sort of who was it Mark Twain said that history doesn't repeat itself but sometimes it rhymes I'm paraphrasing there yeah George Lucas always also said that about um how brilliant the Star Wars prequels were <laughs> he's always saying like it rhymes I don't know what he means by that, but the site Red Letter Media that does these amazing uh, kind of lampoons of the Star Wars prequels, and they're always using this clip of George Lucas talking <laughs> about everything rhyming. <laughs> I am going to check that out. And I'll tell you, right now I am in the mood for some orange chicken because just doing this this episode has made me so hungry, and I feel so fortunate that we're able to go find Chinese restaurants. I mean, what if this what if this went the other way, man? What if they were non-existent? That would be a shame. That would be a crying shame. I mean, one thing I really love about living in Atlanta is that we have this amazing um, explosion of fantastic, you know, uh, culinary options on uh, we've got a place called Buford Highway mm-hmm. where there are you know everything from Korean to Chinese to all kinds of Latin American food Ethiopian and Ethiopian whatever you want and that's that's one thing that's cool about living in the United States uh, is that you have uh, access to all of this great stuff and you know I wouldn't have it any other way I think that's mm-hmm. kind of what makes uh, makes this country special and this means that we are all fortunate. There's a happy ending to this story. Of course, no story ever really ends. So maybe it's better to say at this point in time, it feels very fortunate. And for now, that's where our episode ends, but not our show. Uh, We will be back very soon with more Ridiculous History. And in the meantime, we'd like to hear from you. So yeah, write us your ideas and tell us, you know, what a bummer this episode was. Uh, Spoiler alert, we know. (laughs) (laughs) We're bummed out too. But, you know, you got to learn from this stuff and uh, makes you appreciate where we are now, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, sorry. I'm just, it is a bummer because I'm starting to think about like, we're not that much better. It's like people are still awful. And, you know, mm. there's just a whole other culture that people are acting this way towards. You know, there's really no silver lining at all here. I hate to sound so depressed about it, but it's just kind of making me realize, like, this notion of, like, oh, we've come so far. And maybe some of us have, but I don't uh, know. Like, we've come so far in one regard and devolved so far in another, you know? I, and I wonder— I wonder what other cycles like this exist. There's obviously there's obviously uh, modern day versions of this where maybe some of the language has changed, mm-hmm. but the intent has not. I know. I guess. I mean, I just saw an article the other day about like you know a Jewish deli in New York mm-hmm. being sent an envelope with like a swastika on it and saying mm-hmm. you know Jews get out and things like that. So you know, I mean, this is. I think this stuff is is informative and illuminating, but it's like it's just a bummer to me because it's like I don't feel like we fixed it exactly. You know, I don't know. How do you fix something like this that's so deep seated in certain people? I guess it's not as widespread. Is Hopefully. it used to be? I don't know. Well, it's also, it, it may be a downer, but it's very, very important yes. to have knowledge of this out in the world. I know. Yeah, it's true. You know? I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. This is uh, this is so crushing to me. I just kind of like had a moment where I started to think about, you know, this is, there's so many parallels with this story, I guess, that we're seeing mm-hmm. now in particular. Um, but, you know, 
I think if if we just at least uh, educate ourselves, then we can speak out when we see people acting like jerks. And speaking of speaking out, we'd like to hear from you. What do you think about these sorts of cycles in history? Also, what's your favorite Chinese food? I think I'm throwing that one in there because I'm hungry. You're into you're the orange chicken guy. I don't know. I don't know. It just came to me. Uh, but uh, it's always a game time decision when I'm in front of the menu. I mean, when it comes to like super Americanized Chinese food, mm. huge fan of like orange chicken, especially I like, you know, the crappier, the better. I like mall orange chicken. There's a particular, you know, flavor that mall orange chicken has for me and a soft spot in my heart. Very nostalgic because I remember being a kid and eating orange chicken at the mall. But when it comes to more uh, traditional stuff, like you've, you've done the dim sum thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got a great place on Beaver Highway called Canton House. Yeah, been there. Yeah, which is a great one, dim sum. Um, also a lot of regional cuisine, big fan of Szechuan and can't wait to get out there. Actually, I'm, I'm going to head out and grab something to eat. Yeah, the dim sum is so cool because you literally don't know what you're getting. It's just a mixed bag. It's like a surprise every <laughs> in every bite. And they're all like small bites. But now we're just talking about delicious Chinese food. And we've got to get out of here, don't we, Ben? Yes. Yes, we do, my friends. So speaking of speaking out and uh, speaking of surprising things... Speak out, write to us, surprise us. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, we're on the social medias. Just search for us on Facebook um, and Instagram and you'll find us. You can also send us an email at ridiculous at howstuffworks.com. And we will be back with you very soon for more uh, ridiculous history. Depending on how long it takes for the orange chicken. Yeah. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.